As Paul mentioned, um, we're home from Nagoya, Japan. Um, some of you, how many of you ever heard of Nagoya? All right. Hey, that's not bad. That's not bad. That's a much higher percentage than normal. You guys are a good group. Uh, it's the biggest city you've never heard of. So the population is uh, larger than Dallas and Fort Worth put together, but much smaller area space. Um, it's the headquarters for, not, for Toyota. Uh, it's their international headquarters. I can see the main headquarters of Toyota outside from, from our building. We've been blessed to have a space right in the middle of downtown, just a few blocks from the world's largest train station. So it's, uh, it's a cool city. Um, it's not the most exciting city. I tell people who ask me what it's like, it's kind of like if you took Detroit and put it in the south, you would get a feel, because it's really conservative, but it's also very manufacturing. Um, it's not the sexiest place in the world to live, but it is a good place to live. We're there because it's the most unchurched of the major cities in Japan. So it's third largest behind Tokyo and Osaka. The biggest need is smack dab in the middle of what Japan calls their super mega region, because you can get between this whole region really, really quickly. Um, you can get from Nagoya to Osaka in about 50 minutes, and they're building a new train. In 2022, you'll be able to make the trip to Tokyo. Right now, it's an hour and 40 minutes on the bullet train, five-hour drive. Uh, the new, trip, new train will make that in 45 minutes, which means that our location is basically, after 2022, will be you know, about an hour, hour and a half from 66% of the population, 126 million people. So a strategic location, incredibly important place. The Japanese are the world's second largest unreached people group. I had no idea before we went to Japan that there was need, that there were so few churches in Japan. There are churches there, and praise God for that, and we are there to help support them and to see them grow, to see them catalyze for growth, for multiplication. So our ministry focuses on equipping Christians in Japan for gospel ministry. So we have a seminary and a church planning center. We have a counseling project that we run. Um, we have a small publishing arm, and, and we also have an outreach and evangelism aspect to our ministry. So that's a little bit of background about me and, and, uh, and kind of what I do. Um, our, uh, our family's been there for six years, and, uh, and so we're, you know, we're, we're adjusting. We're always adjusting. Um, this morning, we're going to talk about uh, humanity, and you know, it's, it's funny for me to think about the differences between mankind, and, and it's kind of one, it makes me wonder, like, is there anything that we really can say uh, absolute about mankind, but, but in Scripture we can't. So why don't we, uh, why don't we turn to Scripture now, and uh, this morning we're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, I'm going to read that for us, and I'm going to go ahead and highlight the very first word in this passage is significant. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And uh, the first word is and. And that means that this is picking up where Robbie left off last week and, uh, and where Paul left off the week before. So as Paul mentioned, this is a series and I would encourage you guys to listen to the messages that came before. But the things that have happened thus far is Paul has focused on God's sovereign work, his sovereignty, and he's focused on God's triune nature. God is Trinity. And he's reflected on how that has had effects in this world. And in this passage, he's going to talk about your favorite topic, maybe. Us. Uh, he's going to talk about mankind. And, uh, and so he is going to reflect on, on what it means to be human. So let's look at this passage together, starting with verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and, ra and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the precious promises that are found in this passage. Lord, you, you give us bad news. You give us bad news about who we are apart from Christ, but you also give us really, really amazingly good news. So we pray, Lord, that you would help our hearts to hear uh, the bad news and the good news today for your glory and for our growth. We thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so fundamental thing that Paul is, is trying to share with the Ephesians that he's writing to is he's trying to help them understand who they are. So he's been talking about God and God's glory, and, and now we come to the question of, who am I? And this has been a, a you know, big question for philosophers through the ages, and, uh, and Paul doesn't shy away from it, but he says something very different than most philosophers. Um, in verses 1 through 3, Paul points out that what he, he's essentially asking the question, what is humanity like apart from the generous grace of God? So that's the first question in this, trying to understand who am I? What is humanity like apart from the grace of God? Next, in verses four through nine, he asks this question, what has God done for us in his generous grace? So you guys remember that's the theme for, for this study is God's generous grace, and we're zooming in on it in this passage. What has God done for us in his generous grace? And then lastly, in verse 10, we see, how does this generous grace transform us for good works? Now, as I said a moment ago, it's, it's hard for us to say anything absolute about humanity. So when we ask this question, who am I? It's a hard question to answer. And honestly, maybe it's never been harder in the history of, of mankind to ask that question, who am I? Because now it's, it's so difficult to say anything absolute at all, especially about human beings. If you think about it, there's, there's more perspectives um, on you know, particular ideas than, than ever. And, and we're aware of all of these different perspectives. It's, it's not simply that they're out there somewhere in the world, but we're aware that there are so many different perspectives that people have. Not only that, there's so many different identities. And, uh, and in the West, we have this idea that my identity is something that I create. It's something that I bring into existence. So we can't speak even absolutely about something like gender anymore because there's such a focus on that being part of your identity that you create. And, uh, and I see some of you with your eyes rolling. And that's, that this is a hard thing for us to get our heads around, right? Uh, it, it, it's still uh, is difficult for me being in Japan and coming back to America, there's some things you're like, oh, this is an interesting change. I didn't miss that. Um, we miss lots of good things besides Mexican food. Um, and, and then we also have, there's so many different truths. So we just had someone announce their presidential campaign this past week, someone who's planning to run for president. And uh, he, he posted on Twitter basically sharing that he's excited to get to know all of your truths. And that was in plural. <laughs> it wasn't, I'm excited for us to explore truth together or 
together we'll find truth. It was, I'm excited to get to know your truths. So can we really say anything absolute about humanity? I'm even more confused than you guys are because I live between cultures. So when I'm in Japan, I feel like a foreigner. And then when I come back to America, I still feel like a foreigner because I've become too Japanese to feel comfortable uh, all the way in America. I'm, I'm, I've been here long enough now, it's starting, starting to get my rhythms back. But um, you know, there's just so many differences. And, and you know, some of these are kind of funny. We think about some of these. You know, one example of differences between uh, what it's like living in Japan versus living here, it's just the size of things. And, and sometimes this is uh, better in America and sometimes it's better in Japan. So in Japan, I really uh, don't like how things are so small. So there's a picture that my sister took of my wife and I working in our kitchen the first year that we were living in Japan. And it's hilarious because we look like giants in the kitchen. I'm bending over to like wash dishes and my wife is standing next to our fridge that was this tall at the time and she's towering over it. And, uh, and so, you know, the size of things. I hit my head constantly. I am enjoying this time in America, if nothing else in the fact that I'm not in a perpetually concussed state, okay? There are... <laughs> You know, one day there's going to be, you know, so many former NFL players that are in hospitals getting treatment for concussion-related illnesses, and I'm going to be sitting there next to them because I lived in Japan as a relatively tall person. Um, so there, that's one difference I don't enjoy. And, uh, something I, that, that's kind of comical on the size of things is we brought a group of our, our students, actually, to America a few years ago, and they were blown away as they came to Texas um, at just the size of everything. They had a phrase they kept saying, some of you, it was, it was a variation of a phrase you know, and they say, everything big in Texas. And uh, that was sort of their chant, their mantra throughout the week. And um, what they were getting at was we went to a 7-Eleven, which is a well-known uh, convenience store in Japan. Actually, Japanese people think that it's a Japanese grocery uh, convenience store because it's so popular and so common. And they discovered something that we do not have in Japan, and that's a big gulp. Okay, and, uh, and one of our students couldn't fit his hands, like his two hands didn't fit all the way around the big goal. <laughs> and so there are these funny things. Uh, you know, another thing that's entertaining is just thinking about like vehicles. You know, when I'm in Japan, I live right in the middle of the city, and, and so we walk all the time. And I take the train to work, and, and we have one car between our family, but not even everybody has a car. And so kind of your default mode is either walk or bike or, or maybe take the train. Whereas when I'm here, it's like the average commuter vehicle is a Suburban. Um, and, you know, you, you hop in this giant vehicle just to, just to go, you know, two minutes down the road as you're expected to drive. And it, I, I actually, we, we have one car we're sharing, and so it's very dangerous as, as we're trying to walk across the streets. I felt like I was going to die yesterday just trying to walk across Oak Lawn. And uh, so there's so many, different, there, so many differences, but there's something universal about mankind that we see in this passage. And that is that apart from Christ, we are all dead in sin. We can agree on that. If you believe that the Bible is the word of God, if you believe that this is truth, that there aren't just lots of truths out there, but this is the truth, then you can know that apart from Christ, we are all dead in sin. And, uh, and the point that Paul's trying to drive home in this passage is that God has given us, by his generous grace, he's given us faith alone, through Christ alone, and this transforms us for good works. So let's look at that first question. What is humanity like apart from the generous grace of God? Well, verses one through two, humanity is dead. We are dead. And Paul wants to drive home this idea of the doctrine of the depravity of man. That's just a fancy way of saying that you're wicked when you wake up in the morning, okay? That's, uh, to, to summarize the psalmist, he's really straightforward. He says, I was born in sin. He's confessing this before God. He says, I was born in sin. 
This is the state where we, we find ourselves. And, and it's not just that we're dead, like we, we have no life in us. It's kind of worse than that. We're dead people who walk. That's, that's what it says right after. It says that we are in which we once walked. These trespasses and sins were dead people who walked. That makes us zombies, okay? And so we are zombies that are, are you know, walking throughout this world. And, and you know, zombies don't really do good things. Um, and, uh, and it also says that we are following and there are two things that we're following. First, we're following the course of this world. And, and what that describes is that there are systems that are at work in this world that are fallen, and these systems help you remain fallen and act fallen. So the world is stacked against you in certain ways. You're stuck in systems, a lot of them we don't even know about. It's just kind of the way that things go, and yet these things are infused with sin. There's sin all around us, even in the systems of things that are going on. And even worse than that, and even more alarming than that, is that there's a spiritual dynamic to all this. We naturally follow the prince of the power of the air. Okay, this is a description of Satan himself. So Satan is deceiving the nations. His job is to get as many people to go to hell with him as possible. And so he seeks to blind the eyes of the unbelievers. So apart from Christ, we follow Satan. Ignorantly, unknowingly, we follow Satan, and he is ruling over these systems, and he plays on our flesh, our fallen nature. This is our depravity, and, and uh, Paul says that it's something that we all once lived in. This is not just you know, a problem for a couple people. It's not just those people who are really bad. You know, even for the super sanctified among us, and some of you are, some of you have been walking with the Lord for, for years and, uh, and, and lead a study like this on your own and in your home, and, and you have so many wonderful things. And apart from Christ, we are all in the same boat. There's a way where we can all just kind of feel like we're in it together, but it's not this kind of bright, you know, beautiful picture of our shared humanity. It's a dark picture of the sin and death that we all have in common. And, uh, and Paul's not done yet. He, he continues describing the passions and desires that run amok uh, when we are not uh, conquered by Christ, when, when Christ has not given us new life. When he uses his language, passions and desires, some other words that we could use to, to help us think about this are our lusts, our fixations, our fetishes, our addictions. Apart from Christ, we're all addicts. The only thing is that some of us are a lot better at hiding it, and some of us are a lot better at controlling it. Um, you know, in Japan, we have a, a whole host of, of men who are high-functioning alcoholics. Alcoholism isn't really like described as a big problem, but like tons of people get buzzed pretty heavily every single night. They just can manage that really, really well. And that's essentially the state where, where you, you see some people, they look better than others, the reality is they're just better at managing their sin. They just smell less dead, even though they're just as dead as the rest of us, apart from Christ. Okay? So the, the way that Paul sort of sums this up is by saying that we are by nature children of wrath. This is where it gets scary. Because it's one thing to be dead. It's another thing to be found in a treasonous position with regard to the God of the universe. It's one thing to just not have life. It's another thing to realize that we are enemies of God. And so this makes us just recipients of God's wrath. 
We are children of wrath, and we're born into that wrath because of the sin of Adam. This is called original sin. In other words, uh, Adam is not just representing himself when he sins. He's representing his family and his posterity, his children. And so we, we, it's not that we chose this. This is, this is where we end up. This is humanity apart from Christ. This is the situation where we find ourselves. And, uh, you know, sometimes we want to soften this idea of nature. Uh, coming out of the Enlightenment, there is this idea of the natural man, and, and multiple philosophers kind of uh, dreamed about the idea of if we could find mankind in a primitive state apart from society, he would be uncorrupt. He would be beautiful. He would be perfect, and he would live in harmony. It's society that corrupts mankind, not that he's born depraved. And the reality is, that, that held up until we actually met people in those societies and discovered that they were cannibals, okay? And discovered that actually, no, that, that's, there's, there's nothing um, innocent about primitive natural man. That's, that's our basic sinful state. And this is really driven home as we, you know, this, this idea is developing out of the Enlightenment. And then we show up with this idea of progress in the 20th century, which amounts to World War I, World War II, and basically a whole century of, of global war. And realizing that, wow, like, we really are bad. We really hate each other a lot. We're really in a big mess. And it's really hard to manage our sin, which should highlight the need that we have for a Savior. So uh, I don't want to just bum you out this morning. Um, my job is not just to, you know, <laughs> let me put a damper on your day uh, before you head out. No, the reason that, that Paul wants to give you the bad news is he's trying to prepare us for the glorious, amazing, spectacular, transformative message that he's about to share with us. So that's where we should be. We should be in a place of being ready, ready to hear some good news because, man, that's heavy. Man, that stinks. So we're all dead. Apart from Christ, we are dead in sin. So then the question, what has God done for us in his generous grace? This is amazing. I hope that your hearts can receive this as amazing as, as perhaps it once was for you. And, and, and perhaps maybe that you, you'll see it from an angle that you haven't seen before because here he begins by saying, but God. Now, this is a big but. It's a good big but, okay? It, it's, it's a but that transforms everything. Okay, so, but God. And, and by him driving home this focus of of God. He's going to start with God. He's been talking about us, and all he had to say about humanity is, is that we're dead in sin, and he, he emphasized that in a, a number of ways. But now he's going to turn the focus to look at God and to consider what God has done for us through Christ. But God, rich in mercy. This is a really beautiful passage. We see it in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy, what does that mean? It means that God has no lack of mercy. As much as you have sin, God is rich in mercy. If we think we're uh, overwhelmed by our sinfulness, God has even more mercy. He has more than enough mercy. He's got more mercy that is stored up in the bank. This is this language of riches. He's got mercy. When he opens up his wallet, mercy is just bulging out of it. He's got mercy filling every single account. You check his portfolio and mercy is blowing up, okay? There's mercy that is so thick in God, and here's why. 
when you think about humanity, the, the point of that first part is to understand that we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Let me say that again. We're not, it's kind of like saying, oh, I'm a painter because I paint. No, 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 that's not it. We're not sinners because we sin. That's not the thing that makes us sinners. We sin because by nature, we are sinners. But God is merciful, and so he shows mercy. It's not he's deemed merciful because he has shown mercy. At his very character, he is merciful. And so this powerful, merciful God stands in the face of our dead, treasonous, rebellious sinfulness and does something absolutely amazing. He made us alive together with Christ, even when we are dead in our trespasses. And this is describing an idea that's called union with Christ. In other words, he's he's about to outline the whole gospel narrative the whole story of what it is that Jesus Christ has done for for this world, how Jesus comes to the world, how he lives a sinless life, how he dies on the cross for our sins, how he resurrects from the dead, how he ascends in heaven, and how he now ever lives to intercede for us before the Father, and one day he will return. And what Paul's about to do is he's gonna drop us right in the middle of that gospel narrative. But the way that he does it is by helping us understand, he plays with prepositions with regard to Christ. He helps us understand that we are united to Christ, with Christ, through Christ, in Christ. We are absolutely connected to Christ so that whatever good things happen to Christ, happen to us. Whatever glory Christ gets, we get. We are adopted into the family of God. We receive all the blessings that only belong to Christ by grace alone. We don't deserve it. So as he describes, he says that he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is amazing. Jesus Christ sits on a throne. He's the king of the universe. He he rules over all things. And we sit with him. He rose us up out of our deadness, out of our sinfulness, giving us new life and ascends us into heaven so that In some sense, we are united with Christ in heaven. This is is why our prayers matter. When we pray, we're communing with God. Our, Our spirits are already wrapped up with him. We're already there in a sense. And and so this is why when we pray, we long to, as, as Paul says, to depart from the body and to be with Jesus. We long to go to heaven, but it's not just that. We long for heaven to come to earth. We long for the transforming effects of heaven to to come here where we are because we live this dual nature where I'm ascended on high and yet I still live in this sinful world and I still have my sinful flesh that tags along. But it's been conquered by the amazing work of Jesus Christ. And why does he do this? He does this so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And he wants to emphasize again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So the, the incredible thing here is that our future is enjoying God forever. Like our future is 
forever we get to understand the ineffable, unending mercies of God on display as we remember historically what he's accomplished, as we stare into his infinitude and we see all perfection revealed before us for the first time, as we look at the, the, human, the redeemed humanity and celebrate the redemptive work that Jesus Christ has accomplished, the victorious lamb who is slain and yet lives again so that he calls a people from every tongue and tribe and nation that gather around him. And we see this in Revelation 5 and 7 for this glorious vision of the throne room in heaven to worship him forever. And we get to be a part of that. That's phenomenal. Dead people don't deserve that. Zombies don't deserve that. Rebellious, treasonous sinners don't deserve that. So it's why he's so desirous to help us understand that it's not by our works. He emphasizes that over and over again. It's almost like kind of overly redundant. Grace alone, grace alone, not by your works. Grace alone. Why would he do that? He does that, I think, because, just in case you're going to try to smuggle legalism into this. And as human beings, we want to smuggle legalism into everything. And, and here's why. With everything else that you do in your lives, you are judged is based on the quality or the quantity of your work. Okay? When you leave here, the whole rest of your day, for the most part, except in your communion with the Lord in prayer, you're judged based on the quality and the quantity of your work. Like, that's the state, that's the world that we live in. Like, that's a heavy burden to carry, but we're really used to it. And so we bring that performancism into our Christian lives, thinking that in some ways we contribute to our own salvation, that we're kind of stacking up some points. We, we may know all the, the good theology that, you know, it's not by my works, et cetera, but, but deep down we're still performing like crazy, and we're still listening for that applause. We're not motivated simply by the glory of God and, and the goodness of His grace. We're, we're motivated in part by a desire to... Uh, to, be, to be enjoyed for our, for our work, to be recognized, but not here. Everywhere else, you may be judged on the quality and quantity of your work, but not here, because there's nothing that you can do to earn the salvation. There's no way you can buy it. There's no way that you can, uh, you know, put in some sweat equity and make it happen. You can't work overtime to do it. It's so much different than that. It's a free gift of God. It's the, you know, there's, there's an expression in, in Japan that I think actually a lot of us feel deep down, and that's nothing's more expensive than free. Um, and there's something really beautiful about that expression, because they're kind of right. You know, the reason they're saying that is out of some sort of cynicism, right? Like, if I accept something free, there's some catch to it. There's nothing more expensive than free, and, and so it makes people really nervous to receive things freely. But actually, the reason that this free grace is so expensive is because it costs Jesus everything. It is precious. It's not cheap grace. And yet it's offered to us not by our works, but in spite of our works. Not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. This is really, really good news. So if you have faith, it's from God. If you have faith, you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, you will enjoy the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness forevermore. And that's a promise that you can take into a hard business meeting. And that's a promise that you can take in your fight against sexual sin. That's a promise that you can take to the hospital to visit a dying parent. That's a promise that you can take to the ends of the world to those who have never heard this good news, who are, who are in this 
dying state perpetually because no one has shared this good news with them yet. And that's a promise that you can take to your next door neighbor. And man, isn't it worth it? Because it's so good. Such good news. And this sets us up for the last thing. If we're talking about how much it's all about, not about our works, not about our works, not about our works, well, I still have to work. Like, I'm still trying to do works. Why is it that I do works? And he explains it to us in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So what about our work? Yeah, you better believe you've got a job to do. You've actually got a lot of work to do. We all have a lot of work to do. So what are these good works that God has designed for us? He's prepared this beforehand. He's still working in us and through us. It's not that I'm doing it on my own. It's because of all that Christ has done that I'm able to do these good works. I'm not earning my salvation from them. It's because of all the good news of this salvation that I am able to do these good works. But what are these good works? I think of three different categories of good works. And I'd love for you guys to think about these today. The first good work is you guys all have jobs, or most of you do, I would assume. And if not, you'll have one soon. But you have jobs. You've got work to do. We're going to head off and we're going to do work today. And that's good. God has given us work to do. He's designed us to work. He puts Adam in the garden to work. And we contribute to the development of culture and, and, uh, and, and the growth of, and blessing of humanity through the work that we do. But this work is done differently. It's done understanding the transformative effects of the gospel. It's done to the glory of God, not for my own glory, but to the glory of God so that he would be known. Everything we do, we work heartily as to the Lord and not from men, knowing that from the Lord we will receive the reward of the inheritance because we serve the Lord Christ. It's Colossians 3, 23 and 24. So that's one category is we have work to do and these are good works. Another category is your personal sanctification. You guys are doing a good work right now. I just want to encourage you. We brought a group of our seminary students to Japan. I mentioned that a, a little bit ago. From Japan to America, to Dallas. We called it a reverse mission trip. And so we took them to these various ministries that PCPC supports and is involved in. We took them to Christ for the Nations. We worked with a homeless ministry. This is the first time that many of them had ever met a Muslim in their, in their lives. First time that they'd ever worked with people who were homeless, that homeless people were in Japan, but they don't have any connection to them. And so there's this great opportunity for them to see so many amazing things that PCPC is involved in in terms of ministry. Do you want to know the most impactful thing for these young men who were with us on this trip, who are aspiring to be pastors? The most impactful thing they saw all week was this Bible study. They came, they sat in the back of the room over there, and one by one, they their eyes filled up with tears as they looked at you and saw you guys waking up at seven in the morning to gather together around God's word. And the reason that it, it touched them so much was that feels so impossible in Japan. The most unengaged uh, person in the world in some ways is the Japanese businessman. He feels impossible to reach. And so the idea of a room full of businessmen who would want to get in the word was just beyond their amazement. It gave them hope for what God could do in Japan. Thank you. Thank you for your good work and your own personal sanctification and your own desire for growth. Like this is a good work, but look at how God also uses the third category. It's not just for our personal growth, the fruit that flows from our sanctification. It's also the good work that we do for mission and our public witness. It's the good works that, that leads some crazy person like my family to go to a place across the world that, that really doesn't have this gospel present, that doesn't have strong churches like Park City's Presbyterian Church that needs to know the good news of this gospel 
And that's the same good news. It's the same good work to take that gospel to the corners of Dallas, where that gospel is not yet known. The corners of your neighborhood, where the gospel is not yet known. So it's a pleasure to be with you guys this morning. Thanks so much for the time. I'd love to pray for us right now, and then I'll, I'll let you guys turn to your discussion times. Father, we thank you so much for this good news. Lord, we thank you that uh, you don't pull any punches with us about just how bad we are. And, uh, and Lord, all of us feel this in our gut. Lord, we realize that our sin is there. We love to make excuses for it, but Lord, deep down, we know that this is true, especially as we look at it in your word. And, uh, and yet, Lord, we thank you that in spite of that, you love us. It's a strange love. It's an unexpected love. It doesn't make any sense based on our standards. It's a love that we're not capable of producing on our own. And yet, in the riches of your mercy, you love us. Thank you for that. We pray that it would mobilize us for good works that you designed for us, not to earn anything, but because we love you so much. We pray that you would bless these conversations. Thank you so much for my friends and my brothers here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.